Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show onto Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places people like to listen? How do I make money for my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors too, and you can get paid to podcast. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.com fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. In 1992, DC Comics killed Superman. It was one of the most titanic and memorable events in the history of our crazy comics medium. His death hit newsstands on November 15, 1992, and in celebration of that event, comic shops all around the country sold incredible numbers of copies of Superman number 75, in which he died. It was an event that some people could have expected. After all, Superman is one of the most iconic comic book characters of all time. The embedment of Truth, Justice, and the American Way starred stage and screen and a popular TV series at the time. But what most people don't remember is that on the same day, there were lines around the block the other direction as well. Those fans were waiting for another comic they thought could pay their kids' college tuition and change the comic universe forever. That comic was Bloodshot, number one, and the publisher was Valiant Comics? Bloodshot, I hear you wonder? Why would fans wait forever for a copy of that comic, which is now eternal quarter bin fodder? The answer lies in the fascinating history of the once-in-a-lifetime line of Valiant Comics. Stick around and I'll tell you that story. Hello and welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs, author of the American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1970s and the 1990s, as well as conversations books about Jim Shooter, Steve Gerber, and Don McGregor. In each edition of this podcast, I'll, explain, I'll explore the history of the comics medium with some lecture-type writing, as well as interviews with some of my fellow historians and some of the people who made that history. This week, I'll start my telling of that history with one of the most intriguing comic book companies of the 1990s, a company that embodies the boom-and-bust nature of the business during that crazy decade. I'm talking about the company that brought us such notable comic series as Harbinger, Bloodshot, Magnus Norbot Fighter. I'm talking about Valiant Comics. The most important man in the early days of Valiant Comics is Jim Shooter. It's hard to understate the importance of Shooter to the comics medium as we know it today. As much as anyone, Shooter is responsible for the growth of Marvel Comics into the transcendent pop culture icon we all know today. Suter is the man behind books like Secret Wars and the man who installed John Byrne on Fantastic Four and Frank Miller on Daredevil, among many others, and sparked the growth of the company as a commercial ent entity. It's fair to say that without Shooter, we wouldn't have Marvel as we know it today. For reasons I'll get into in future podcasts, Shooter was forced out of Marvel in 1987. Before he left, Shooter began meeting with a man named Steve Masarski, who managed such hot art acts at the time as the Allman Brothers Band and Cyndi Lauper. Again, that's outside the scope of this article, and there's a, a interesting story about the falling out between Masarski and Lopper, which is famously acrimonious, well worth a substantial internet search. In 87, Masarski approached Marvel with the idea of a Marvel on Ice, similar to the Disney on Ice shows, which played all around the country in that era. 
Though Shooter had recently been fired, Marvel executives connected the two men to create a proposal that might earn some people a few dollars. Though nothing came of that idea, the two men hit it off and agreed to go into the comic book business together. After all, who better to get comic shop owners to pay attention than Jim Shooter? And who better to line up intellectual properties than Steve Masarski? So, in 1989, the pair created Voyager Communication, the blanket company that included Valiant. After getting investments from venture capitalists, the pair looked into gathering their first properties. Shooter first got agreement from Golden Books to license classic comic characters Solar, Man of the Atom, and Magnus Robot Fighter. But Masarski pushed Shooter to launch comics featuring then-hot Nintendo game console consoles, characters rather, and WWF, later WWE, talent. They were easy to license since Masarski represented Nintendo in his entertainment law practice, and he believed they would sell well in outlets like Toys R Us. It might have seemed like a good idea to sell to stores like Toys R Us. Of course, books stayed on the shelves for a long time at that store, and game fans know they could find strategy books there on the days when physical book was essential to knowing how to beat a game. The problem was that the comics were terrible. Video game fans hated the Nintendo comics. They were off-model, frequently diverting from the characters game players love. The comics were too juvenile for kids and too mature for the youngest readers. Worst of all, the comics were unnecessary. They added nothing to the players' experiences and didn't add anything to the games. The wrestling comics started in 1991 and initially sold pretty well. They were published. Published magazine size, WWE Battle Mania from August 1991, sold a respectable 300,000 copies. But Shooter found working with the World Wrestling Foundation a nightmare. As he recalled, they'd been cooperative on, uncooperative on every front. They honored none of their promises about helping us market our books. They were insane with regard to approvals. No drawing we made of the wrestlers was ever adequate. Consequently, Battle Mania only lasted five issues. It was another swing and miss for Masarski, and the grim reality was that the projects he was lining up only moved Valiant closer and closer to, bank to bankruptcy. Luckily for everyone involved, Shooter recognized the situation and took steps to change it before it was too late. And a move that would end up saving Valiant, Shooter redirected the company's focus to the gold key characters he bought at a low cost a year earlier. Published in March 1991, cover date May, Magnus Robot Fighter No. 1 featured writing by Shooter, pencils by Art Nichols, and inks by Bob Layden. The title protagonist lives in the future city of North Am, in which robots satisfy all human needs. When a group of robots called the Free Wills re rebel against their human masters, Magnus must become the savior of mankind. That first issue sold 90,000 90, copies. Not one of the year's bestsellers, but a decent enough performance to give Shooter and his staff confidence they were on the right track. Sales to drop to 60,000 copies with Magnus No. 2, then stayed at that amount for several issues afterwards. One incentive readers had for sticking with the series was a promise of a free mail-away comic book. The first, issues, first eight issues of Magnus included a coupon. Collected together, the eight coupons could be redeemed for Magnus No. 0, an issue that was both a limited edition collectible and a prequel cap chapter to the overall series. The Mail-Away Zero issue was one of only was the first of several different gimmicks that Valiant utilized to brand itself as a different kind of comic book company. Another example is Magnus Number no. Five, which was published as a flipbook. A new Magnus adventure on one side, and the introduction of a futuristic Japanese warrior named Rai on the other side. 
That flipbook arrangement continued through Magnus number no. 8, and the world of Rye proved popular enough with the fans to receive his own title two months later, one of the best Valiant books ever published. Well before then, however, Valiant spotlighted another Gold Key character with Solar Man of the Atom. The first issue, written by Shooter, penciled by Don Perlin, and inked by Bob Layton, premiered in June 1991, cover date September. In an homage to the original version of the character, Valiant Solar was Dr. Phil Selesky, a physicist who gets exposed to lethal doses of radiation during the emergency shutdown of a nuclear reactor. Rather than killing him, the radiation gives Selesky the ability to manipulate all forms of energy, which reminds him of the Dr. Solar superhero he grew up reading about in Gold Key Comics. Huh, clever twist of the tale there, huh? For many readers, Solar was Valiant's most attractive title because it boasted the work of legendary artist Barry Windsor Smith, both on the covers and in eight-page backup stories. Having just wrapped up a 13-chapter Wolverine origin serial for Marvel Comics Presents, Winter Smith was hired to be Valiant's creative director. It was the kind of hire Valiant needed to further legitimize itself because by 91, Winter Smith was synonymous with creative excellence. Whether it be for his singular artwork in the 1970s on Conan the Barbarian, or later as a fine art painter, Winter Smith was one of the most admired and respected professionals in the comics industry. His involvement helped Valiant gain much-needed attention and blossom into something bigger and better than it was at the time. As 1991 ended, Valiant was the 10th largest publisher in the direct sales comic market, controlling only 0.64% of all sales. One short year later, however, Valiant would command a much larger market share of a much larger comic market. But the seeds were there for Valiant's eventual success. Shooter and Masarski were building a new team that would intrigue fans. Just as importantly, Valiant began to be heralded in one of the most important fan publications of the time. Wizard, number seven, from that late 1991, highlighted the Valiant characters behind a cover by Barry Windsor Smith of new character, Exo Manowar. As Valiant began to take off, its staff promoted the investment potential of the new Valiant line. Soon, Valiant was hyped as a publisher fans had to pay attention to. In 1992, the hype would reach a fever pitch. In 92, Valiant went from being a niche publisher that released wrestling comics a handful of gold key, gold key hero revivals to a larger line of realistic-feeling superhero titles. Valiant's most important figure was Shooter, who stressed that Valiant's stories take place in the world outside your window, mirroring the approach he had in 1986 when his new universe imprint was rolled out at Marvel. The cornerstone series of the unified Valiant universe, and perhaps the series most dear to Shooter's heart, was Harbinger. Written by Shooter and illustrated by his young, talented protege David Lapham, Harbinger had parallels to the X-Men and its story of misunderstood, superpower teenagers on the run. The lead character is Peter Stanchek, a powerful psionic who flees from the malicious Harbinger Foundation and CEO the megalomaniacal Toyo Harada. Peter, along with his girlfriend Chris Hathaway, gathers together a group of young allies to help him bring down Harada. Faith Herbert, a cheerful, overweight girl with flying powers who dubbed herself Zephyr, but who friends call her Zeppelin, the illiterate and brutish John Torkelson, nicknamed Torque, who has superhuman strength, and the flirtatious Charlene Dupree, or Flamingo, whose pyrokinetic powers, beauty, and high heels betray a crippling lack of self-esteem. Harbinger focused tightly on the relationships between these characters, with a naturalistic style that fit Shooter's vision of the comic reflecting the real world. J. 
Just as it did with Magnus the year before, Valiant inserted coupons into the opening issues of Harbinger. Readers who collected those coupons could redeem them for a free copy of Harbinger number zero. Shooter created the Harbinger characters in 1987 as a movie treatment for Paramount Pictures. Though head, the head of production of Paramount said he loved the treatment, he asked Shooter to rewrite it as a comedy so it could feature box office superstar Eddie Murphy. Shooter declined and pulled back the property, which the, he then revived for Valiant with a few changes. The next original Valiant series, Exo Manowar, first issue cover dated February 1992, starred Eric, a resourceful yet furious Visigoth warrior who was kidnapped by spider aliens and held captive on their spacecraft for over 1,500 years. When the alien ship is attacked, Eric dons a powerful suit of armor, which he uses to escape the spacecraft and return to Earth, where he's an incredibly powerful man out of time. Pitched by longtime Iron Man artist Bob Layton in the summer of 1991 as a barbarian from outer space with high-tech alien armor, the series shows Eric finding his way in the modern world while intermittently getting involved in Toya Harada's latest schemes. That cross-titled continuity, casting Harada as nemesis in several series, demonstrated the way the Valiant universe stitched itself together. The aliens featured in EXO are the same ones that appeared in other Valiant comics, and readers eventually learned that Eric was freed when the alien ship was destroyed by another Valiant hero, Solar Man of the Atom. Written first by Shooter and comics veteran Steve Englehart before Leighton assumed the reins with issue number five, EXO Man of War progressed in real time, with each issue narrating events 30 days beyond those of the previous issue. Eric grows and changes as the series progresses, eventually becoming a corporate CEO who settles happily into late 20th century life. The title of the series came from Valiant Director of Sales, John Hart, who suggested the character be called Exo because he wears an exoskeleton. Rye, which had been running as a backup series of Magnus Robot Fighter, received his own comic with Rye No. 1, March 1992, written by David Michelinney, with art by Joe St. Pierre and Charles Barnett. A uniquely dark and emotionally complex series, Rye touched on elements of honor, inheritance, politics, and betrayal, depicting an isolated man, the inheritor of his family's heroic mantle in an even more isolated environment, desperately trying to find the right thing to do, and often failing. The series was set in a bizarre future Japan that orbits the Earth in a durable plastisteel animal frame, launched into Earth orbit after the defeat of the spider aliens in the Magnus backup. The Rai had a more high-concept style compared to other Valiant series. Its art and approach fit the Valiant template. At the end of its initial eight-issue run, Rai lies dead. The city has crashed back to Earth, and despair pervades the Japanese citizens. In an era filled with exuberance, the dark tone of Rye stood out as a bracing antidote. The Valiant line next expanded with Englehart scripted Shadow Man, first issue cover dated May 1992, which depicted a mystically powered musician from New Orleans. Dark and disturbing, Shadow Man is a true being of the night who lives in his own mysterious world. Shooter Englehart and David Lapham, the artist, took pains to make the comic as authentic as possible. Lapham traveled to New Orleans and took extensive photos of the city, while Englehart studied the city's jazz scene so he could portray it accurately. Of course, that was in the days before the internet, so everything had to be done impersonally, manually, and it was a real challenge. By early 1992, most Valiant titles sold between 25,000 and 30,000 copies per issue. Well, that was 
unspectacular, Wizard Magazine at least took note of an upward trend when the Price Guide in its fifth issue posed the rhetorical question, has anyone noticed that all the Valiant titles are slowly climbing up the price charts? Two months later, Wizard number seven featured a cover of Exo Man of War by Barry Windsor Smith and interviews with Windsor Smith and Shooter. That same month, Solar number 10, cover dated June 92, combined an all-black embossed cover with the introduction of a new character named Eternal Warrior, whose life spans centuries. That issue's initial print run of 40,000 copies quickly sold out, forcing the order of a second print run to satisfy demand. To borrow Wizard's beloved catchphrase, Valiant was suddenly hot. Comics that Valiant released not even a year prior was now fetching high prices on the back issue market, and new Valiant releases began selling over 100,000 copies per issue. The dramatic escalation in reader interest coincided with the publication of Valiant's first summer crossover, Unity. Encompassing Valiant's entire catalog of characters, Harbinger, Magnus Robot Fighter, Rise, Shadow Man, Solar, Man of the Atom, Exo Man of War, and two new series, Archer and Armstrong and Eternal Warrior, Unity centers on Erica Pierce, one of Solar's physicist colleagues who goes mad when she gains godlike powers. Seeking to repair a timeline that has been damaged by Solar's adventures, Pierce vows to reset the entirety of history. I will bring order and unity to all existence, and this time creation shall have a just god, she declares. In the event's first chapter, the 16-page Unity number 0, August 92, written by Shooter, drawn by Windsor Smith, and offered free of charge so as to hook readers, all the valiant heroes are transported to an alternative future world to fight a war against Pierce, renamed Mother God. By event's end, with Unity number 1, October 92, Eric is defeated, but the valiant universe has been drastically and permanently changed. Both Rai and Harbinger member Torek have, been, have died, Shadow Man has found love, and a new member of the Valiant Universe has been Spotlight, the Native American dinosaur hunter and former Gold Key character Turok. Unity number one was Valiant's best-selling comic book up to that time, and in its wake, Valiant's entire run got a sales boot with some titles selling up to 150,000 copies per issue. The Valiant Universe had a tight, interconnected continuity, which many fans found attractive, so much so that they passionately hunted down Valiant back issues, driving secondary market values even higher. By December 1992, seven of the top ten most sought-after back issues listed in Wizard number 17 were Valiant comics. Unity reset Valiant's status quo. Before the crossover, Valiant sales were barely strong enough to keep the company in business. Post-Unity, sales improved so much that Diamond Comics Distributing declared Valiant its Publisher of the Year from 1992. Former Valiant editor Jeff Gomez attributes the line's success to the men behind it. The initial art artistic chemistry at Valiant, when Jim Shooter and Barry Windsor Smith were spearheading the direction of the superhero universe, was a rare flashpoint in the history of comics. Those were unique, personal, and passionately done stories, he said. One of the secrets of Valiant's success came from its personal touch with readers and retailers. The Valiant office often rewarded people who helped in the company's success by providing them with comics that had special covers. Similar in concept to gold records given to stores that helped a musician achieve huge sales, Valiant sent gold logo variants to retailers and consumers who the Valiant team felt went above and beyond the call of duty to support the company. Those comics could be retained for the pleasure of owning a rare collectible or immediately resold for big bucks. 
For example, a special Unity number zero variant had a red cover banner rather than the blue one found in all the other copies. The red banner variants were specially shipped to select owners and sold for as much as $125. Not bad for a comic that once was free. November 1992's Rye Number Zero, written by David Michelini, illustrated by Lapham and Tom Ryder, pulled, all, pulled together all the elements that helped Valiant achieve its success. Beneath a striking cover that silhouetted Rye against a rising sun, the issue provided a glimpse into the future of the Valiant universe. Among other things, Rye Number Zero features a crucial new character named Bloodshot, a nanite-enhanced soldier who escapes the grasp of those who made him powerful with the help of a geomancer introduced the, during the Unity crossover. The issue also features the fate of many of Valiant's other key characters, including the death of Shadow Man fighting his nemesis Master Dark, the transformation of Archer from Archer and Armstrong into a guru of sorts, the disappearance of Peter Stanchek, and the continued rise of power of Toyo Harada to the point where he controls two-thirds of the Earth. Ride number zero was a near-instant sellout, quickly gaining value on the secondary market and a seemingly permanent place in Wizard Magazine's top 10 list of most sought-after back issues. Valiant's last new series from 1992 spun out of Harbinger. Hardcore presents a group of super-powered Vietnam War veterans banded together to oppose Harada. Its first issue, cover date December 1992, offered something no other Valiant comic book could, a gatefold cover drawn by none other than Image Comics creator Jim Lee. Initially deciding, declining to draw the comic cover for Valiant because he was too busy with Wildcats, his Image series, Lee changed his mind when Masarski offered him something the artist really wanted, tickets to a U2 concert. Lee wanted to attend the rock band show when they reached his home city of San Diego, but to his chagrin, the concert was sold out. When Lee mentioned that fact to Masarski, the Valiant publisher uses connections in the entertainment industry to secure a pair of tickets, which Lee accepted in exchange for the cover. So we have Bono, in part, to thank for Jim Lee doing work for Valiant. The appearance of Jim Lee's artwork on a Valiant comic was a pleasant surprise. Later the news that Jim Shooter was leaving the company was nothing short of an unexpected shock. Five years after he was fired as Marvel's editor-in-chief, Shooter was now out at Valiant. Some claimed that Shooter was let go because he had become too difficult to work with, requiring his personal approval of every new release, which bogged down Valiant's production process. For a publisher that prided itself on always shipping its comics on time, the delays became untenable. Shooter claimed he was pushed out of Valiant uh, in a, rather, I should say, in a, in a June 21st, 1993 Forbes magazine article, Shooter claimed he was pushed out of Valiant in a power play by two members of the board, Masarski and his paramour and later wife, Melanie Alcun. Rift had developed between Shooter and Masarski that dated back to Masarski's decision to publish the money-losing Nintendo and WWF wrestling comics. A year later, with Valiant finally turning handsome profit, Monsarski finally wanted to sell the company to a group of investors that would secure movie deals and better newsstand distribution while keeping all of Valiant's executives on staff. Upon seeing the particulars of the proposed sale, however, Shooter realized he was being handed the short end of the stick. For example, he was being asked to sign a 10-year contract that stipulated his employment could be terminated if he failed to engender good morale, as it said. As Shooter explained, Let's say I piss off Bob Layton one day. They could fire me and claw back all my stock with no compensation, leaving me with nothing. 
How long do you think in that 10-year period it would take for me to piss somebody off? A letterer or colorist, for instance? A janitor? An intern? Sensing a trap, Shooter refused to sign the contract. That defiance only delayed the inevitable as the company's board of directors soon fired him anyway. In an arbitrated settlement, Shooter received several hundred thousand dollars for Valiant. As it turned out, that was a fraction of what Shooter would have yielded if he had not been let go. Meanwhile, Bob Layton became Valiant's new editor-in-chief, and he would steer the company into its most successful days right before its spectacular downfall. 1993 started with promise, but ended with frustration. Another high-profile comic of 1993 also seemed to have great potential, but resulted in disaster. Throughout the 1992 comic book convention season, Image co-founder Jim Lee spoke with Valiant Comics publisher Steve Masarski and Vice President of Publishing John Hart about the possibility of the two companies collaborating on the comic book event. Considering how popular both Valiant and Image had become, the idea seemed like a surefire hit. Lee eventually brought Rob Liefeld into the discussion, and by the end of 1992, the two image creators met with Masarsky and Hartz in Kansas City to work out the project details. What followed was the first major comic universe crossover since 1982's The Uncanny X-Men and the New Teen Titans, a six-issue miniseries called Deathmate, which teamed up Valiant and Image's cast of characters. In reality, the only image characters created in Deathmate or featured in Deathmate were the owns, own, ones owned by Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, and Mark Silvestri, since they were the only image founders who participated in the crossover. Each company agreed to supply creative personnel who would jointly create prologue and epilogue issues for the series. The remaining four issues were then evenly divided with Image and Valiant responsible for producing them on their own. These issues were self-contained and identified by color, yellow, blue, red, and black rather than a number. Theoretically, this arrangement would compensate for any production delays as it would allow the issues to be republished in whatever order the creative teams finished them. Fan anticipation ran high as house ads bombastically declared Deathmate the biggest crossover event in the history of comics. Accordingly, the retailers placed big orders, not only of the comic books, but also of upper deck Deathmate trading cards. Jim Lee reassured everybody that image intended on living up to its end of the bargain. He said, I don't foresee any delays. Everyone knows that these books are high profile. There are a lot of people waiting on that project. We'll look especially bad if Valiant comes through on their end, and we don't, so there's a lot riding on this. Like the fans, Valiant's executives were also very excited about the project, but when they negotiated the agreement with Image, they failed to consult one of their most important people, Valiant's editor-in-chief, Bob Layton. As Layton recalls, Deathmate was jammed down our throats, and we did our best to comply, although most Valiant creators thought it was a bad idea. And the Valiant creators turned out to be right. Despite Jim Lee's assurances, the project was immediately plagued with delays from the image creators, causing Leighton a tremendous amount of stress and frustration. In one memorable incident, Leighton flew from New York to Southern California, then literally sat on Rob Liefeld's doorstep until Liefeld finished drawing his pages for Deathmate Prologue. Leighton then inked the pages in an Anaheim hotel room before returning to the East Coast. What a pain in the ass that was, Leighton later complained. There I was with my own company to manage, and I was in California managing someone else's people. Thanks in no small part to Leighton's efforts, Death Made Prologue shipped on time at the end of June, cover date September 1993. 
The lead story, written by Layton with art by Barry Winter Smith and Jim Lee, has Solar Man and the Atom meeting Wildcat's Void in unreality, a kind of time-space limbo. Instantly smitten with each other, the two cosmically powerful beings embraced. As they become... As they become close, the fabric of reality alters, and the image of Valiant universes merge into one. Valiant then published Deathmate Yellow and Deathmate Blue in early July and early August, respectively. Produced by such Valiant Comics mainstays as, mainstays as Mike Barron, Bob Hall, Mike Lee, David Michelinie, John Ostrander, and Don Perlin, among others, the two issues present battles and team-ups featuring Valiant heroes like Archer and Armstrong, Magnus Robot Fighter, Ninjack, Solar and Shadow Man, and image groups like Brigade, Cyberforce, and Wildcats. The two issues Image responsible, was responsible for, Deathmate Black and Deathmate Red, were originally solicited for late summer release. Deathmate Black, which introduced Gen 13, a teenage superhero group co-created by Jim Lee, writer Brandon Choi, and newcomer artist J. Scott Campbell, wasn't published until October. Deathmate Red, written and drawn by Rob Liefeld, and predominantly featuring his Youngblood characters, came out in December, four months after its scheduled release date. Perhaps more embarrassing, Image published Deathmate Red after the release of Deathmate Epilogue, the issue that conduct, concluded the crossover event. Deathmate Red was so late that Image resolicited it to give retailers the opportunity to cut their orders. The earliest Deathmate issues had print runs close to 500,000 copies. Upon resolicitation, Deathmate Red's print run dropped to 180,000 copies, and even that outstripped demand because by the end of the year, few cared anymore about the Image Valiant crossover. Retailer Cliff Biggers explained, Deathmate was a concept that we all thought was a good idea until we had five, six, eight months to think about it. That lateness killed any reader interest in the book. Once again, retailers got stuck with dozens, if not hundreds of copies of a book they had no chance of selling. When all was said and done, Deathmate became another bad Image Comics investment that retailers couldn't recoup. Appropriately then, Deathmate received Capital City's Flop of the Year Award. The distributor noted, if the entire crossover had come out on time, Deathmate would have been the success of the year. Many consider Deathmate the comic book that single-handedly put an end to the industry's prosperous times and the biggest reason why so many comic stores closed their, their doors for good. In truth, there was plenty of blame to go around. One of the companies at fault was Deathmate's co-publisher, Valiant. In 92, Valiant's interconnected fictional universe became so popular that average monthly sales for every Valiant comic increased from 30,000 copies to nearly 150,000 copies. The upward sales trend didn't stop there. Speculators fueled it even higher, as they bought multiple copies of Valiant issues in the expectation of reaping considerable and immediate profit. After all, according to Wizard Magazine's back-issue price guide, the earliest Valiant Valiant releases had skyrocketed in value in a relatively short amount of time. But as Valiant continued to increase its print runs, Bob Layton grew concerned. He had been in the industry long enough to know that the speculator bubbles inevitably pop. The longer Valiant created to, catered to speculators, the more likely Valiant was threatening with its own future viability. After Layton explained the situation to Steve Masarski and John Hartz, the three of them agreed that Valiant would never print more than 500,000 copies of any single issue. Gee, doesn't that sound generous? 
Yet that generous agreement was almost immediately broken with the release of Bloodshot No. 1, January 1993, written by Kevin Van Hook, with art by Don Perlin and Bob Wyacek, and a chromium cover by Barry Winter Smith. The issue reached comic shops the same day as Superman No. 75. Van Hook remembers, At Forbidden Planet in New York City, there were two lines around the block, one for each mega-hit selling book. Bloodshot offered an action-packed story starring Valiant's nanite-powered assassin, and the first issue sold 742,000 copies, a number spurred in part by the speculator's belief that the issue would be a collector's item which would quickly increase in value. Several months after Bloodshot number 1 hit the stands, however, Valiant reported that many retailers had still had hundreds of copies of $3.50 cover price comic on hand. That meant collectors were going to have to wait till they could sell their copies for a profit. Meanwhile, Rye of the Future returned in Rye and the Future Force number 9, May 93, assuming the numbering from the previous run of the series. Even though it lacked a special enhanced cover, the issue sold 900,000 copies. In a sign of the overheated comics market, 900,000 copies was only good enough to place Rye as a fourth best-selling comic of the month. Other prominent Valiant bestsellers of 93 include Magnus Robot Fighter number 25, with a metallic silver cover that heralded a new direction for the series, Exo Manowar Zero, which included a chromium foil cover by Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti, Secret Weapons number, number 1, a book that teamed Bloodshot, Eternal Warrior, Livewire, Shadow Man, Solar Stronghold, and Exo Manowar, and The Second Life of Dr. Mirage number 1 written by Layton, with art by Bernard Chang and Ken Branch. All those issues sold hundreds of thousands of copies and finished at or near the top of the sales charts in their respective months. But, 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 you knew there was a but. Without a doubt, Valiant's most auspicious comic of 1993, and the book that most represents a speculator frenzy of the times, was Turok Dinosaur Hunter. With a $3.50 cover price, chromium cover, Turok number 1, July 93, seemed specifically made for collectors. Retailers ordered a million and 750,000 copies, only good enough for a fourth place finish on the sales chart that month, but still far more copies than reader demand warranted. Many retailers hoped to turn around their cash of copies for a quick profit. Instead, after Burn speculating on books like Bloodshot number 1, many collectors skipped Turok altogether or only publish one copy, purchase one copy. Consequently, readers end up stuck with cases of Turok number one, desperate to sell copies at pennies on the dollar. As Capital City Distribution President John Davis reported, I'd be surprised if 200,000 copies of Turok number one actually sold to customers. Just like that, the speculators abandoned Valiant, causing retailers to decrease their orders of Valiant comics dramatically. As 1993 drew to a close, Valiant's average monthly sales had dropped from 300,000 to 75,000 copies per issue, a downward slide from which the company would never recover. Even though Valiant maintained a high level of professional quality, its comics became symbols of a speculator-driven era. Comic heroes and video games have always been aligned with each other, so few observers were surprised when a video game company bought a comic publisher in 1994. Acclaimed Entertainment had an ad on the back cover of Magnus Robot Fighter No. 1. Three years later, the company best known for such games as Double Dragon, Mortal Kombat, and NFL Quarterback Club purchased Valiant Communications, 
Valiant's, Voyager Communications, rather, Valiant's parent company for $65 million in cash and stock. Consummated on April 7, 1994, after months of negotiations, the deal gave acclaimed control over a collection of properties that seemed well-primed to be translated into video games. In fact, one of the reasons for the deal was that the game developer urgently needed to create new franchises. One week after acquiring Valiant, Acclaim failed to renew its licenses to produce new editions of their best-selling Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam games. The New York Times reported these two series of games represented as much as 75% of Acclaim's revenue. An analyst told the Times that Valiant acquisitions should help. Quote, On the surface, the acquisition is positive because it addresses some of the revenue replacement relating to the loss of licenses. The deal was lucrative for Triumph Capital, the investors behind Voyager. Comic sales have been plummeting rapidly, but Valiant still netted $30 million per year for them. Acclaim's offer presented the perfect opportunity for Triumph to exit the publishing business, while Acclaim quickly went to work converting Valiant's heroes into video game stars. A 1996 game that featured Exo Man of War teaming with Iron Man was a steady seller. Even more popular 1997 game featured Turok. Acclaim later produced games featuring Shadow Man, among other characters. Valiant's new owners retained the existing editorial staff, including publisher's CEO Steve Masarski, senior vice president John Hartz, and editor-in-chief Bob Layton. All three had large equity stakes in Voyager, so each earned millions of dollars from the acquisition. Unfortunately for them, the money would be paid in one-fifth installments over a period of five years. That gave them golden handcuffs to remain at Valiant. As the sale closed, Valiant sales were in deep decline from the 1993 levels. According to Capital City, Magnus Robot Fighter tumbled from a per-issue average of nearly 200,000 copies sold in 1993 to 22,600 in April 1994, almost a, almost a 90% drop. Exo Man Award dropped from a peak of 91,000 copies sold through Capital City to 27,350 in April. In its third year of existence, Image Comics published work by some of the most well-known characters in the industry. For example, after 10 years at Marvel, Sergio Aragonis moved his much-loved Gru the Wanderer to Image. In fact, he chose them over Valiant. By 1994, Valiant was in major trouble. In a survey published in July 1994, 8 of 14 comic shop retailers reported sales drip slips for Valiant versus the year before. Hearts put forth a good face on the dip by bidding good riddance to speculators who had inflated revenues. A year ago, he said, we were selling approximately 300 to 400,000 copies per title, and that's too much. I know it's weird to hear a publisher say he would like to sell, have fewer sales, but I know those sales weren't going into the hands of readers. They were going into the hands of speculators. Hearts also cited the fact that Valiant's per-title average circulation was higher than either Marvel or DC's. Sales, though, continued to decrease throughout the rest of the decade, aided by a bold experiment in 1995 that backfired on Valiant. The company showed the comic industry's decline in sharp terms in 1995. The newly rechristened Valiant Heroes from Acclaim Comics continued their steep sales drop, and in an attempt to reverse that course, Masarsky and Layton delivered Birthquake, 
a line-wide initiative that began after the cancellation of Ada Valiant's lower-selling titles, including Armorines, Geomancer, Harbinger, Hardcore, Psylords, Ride the Future Force, The Second Life of Dr. Mirage, and Secret Weapons. Then, starting with a cover date July 1995, nine of Valiant's remaining series, Bloodshot, Eternal Warrior, Magnus Robot Fighter, Ninjak, Solar, Timewalker, Turok, Visitor, and Exo Manowar were promoted to a bi-weekly publishing schedule to enable two-issue arcs by rotating creative teams. Valiant recruited some of the industry's hottest creators to create comics for them, several of whom had never worked for the publisher before, including Dan Jurgens, Ron Mars, Bart Sears, Norm Brayfogle, Jackson Geis, Paul Galassi, Keith Giffen, John Ostrander, and Tom Grinberg, among others. Many of the new writers and artists took their assignments in new create new directions. For example, on Solar, Dan Jurgens shook up the book's cast. Writer Ron Mars and artist Bart Sears gave Exo Manowar a new action adventure spin, which moved the comic away from its roots as a cross between Conan and Iron Man. The changes in story and talent, however, did nothing to improve sales. As a Chicago area retailer described, the birthquake event was naturally a disaster. Perhaps it's not the best approach to go bi-weekly with tales that, or it's titles that people weren't buying once a month. Indeed, several months after the launch of Birthquake, Acclaim represented only 3% of comics sold through Capital City. That was a precipitous drop from two years earlier. One sign of Birthquake's failure was the layoff of over half of, Valley, of Acclaim's staff in mid-September. Acclaim Games likewise suffered tough times. In 1993, at the peak of the comic book boom, boom, Valiant enjoyed a market share of 8%, with some of its titles selling a million copies per issue. Three years later, its market share had plummeted to 1.18%, and flagship titles like Exo, Turok, and Bloodshot couldn't even muster 5,000 copies per issue. Forays into crime comics and caught up ad- comic adaptations of the popular Magic the Gathering game fared, failed to generate much interest either. The decline on the comic side paralleled an even, even deeper plunge in Acclaim's video game division. Acclaim Game lost more than $140 million in the fourth quarter of 1997 alone. Summing up the year at Acclaim, Exo Manowar 68 rather ironically displays the words, The End, on its cover. In this climactic tale, writer Bob Layton concludes the series with the protagonist Eric feeling dislocated from reality as he suffers delusions while trapped in the spider alien ship from his origin story. That final issue ends with Eric breaking out of the ship and beginning his heroic cycle once again. It was an apt conclusion, one that both closed the original Valiant line and signaled that Acclaim wasn't completely out of the comics business. While readers wouldn't see Conan in a can again for several years, a different kind of Exo Man of War would be part of a new rebirth beginning in 1997. By all appearances, as 1997 began, Claim had a thriving video game division. Indeed, it's Turok Dinosaur Hunter, the first-person shooter game released in January 1997 for the nascent Nintendo 64 console, generated rave reviews from video game magazines and sold an impressive 1.5 million copies. As Acclaim editor Jeff Gomez reported, the game's first day gross sales in dollars exceeded most blockbuster movies. It was huge! Despite the success, Acclaim's games division was hemorrhaging money, mainly due to mismanagement and the high cost of video game production. Acclaim's comics line wasn't faring very well either. 
Well, the Marvel acclaimed crossover EXO Man of War slash Iron Man Heavy Metal was a solid 1996 comic hit that coincided with the video game release of the same name. Sales on just about every other acclaimed comic book were at best lackluster. The terrible performance of acclaimed crime books, Magic the Gathering adaptations, and Baywatch photo novels showed deep weakness in the direct sales market. In fact, sales were so bad the company even closed down its core superhero line with its September 1996 cover dated Exo Man of War and only released three crime comics per month over the subsequent three months. One of the ways Acclaim hoped to breathe new life into the company was through its re- rebooting its comics line. This makeover would allow them to get out from under expensive contracts signed by the ill-fated during the ill-fated Birthquake event and provide new storylines for future video games. Acclaim's working theory was that fans had grown bored with its older with its older style valiant heroes and would be attracted to new talent on familiar sounding titles. To pursue that goal, popular writer Fabian Nicieza, who often appeared on the Wizard Top 10 writers list, was brought on board to help brainstorm new ideas. Nicieza spearheaded the launch of a new set of valiant heroes for the late 90s. Nicieza said, The decisions on how to approach the tiles were pretty open. It wasn't an autocratic decision-making system. I presented my thoughts on relaunching the new universe for a variety of reasons. For every argument I had in favor of doing that, of course they were equally valiant, valid arguments against. It wasn't an ego thing, it was a business decision. How can we make the most noise? How can we get fresh creative voices on our books? How can we best reposition our properties for the marketplace and for the needs of our parent company? Premiering with February 1997 cover dated issue, the new Valiant Heroes spanned 10 ongoing monthlies and two quarterlies, none of which referenced the original series. The new Exo Manowar, conceived and written by Mark Wade and Brian Augustine, and illustrated by Sean Tran and Tom Ryder, was more a cross between Captain America and Iron Man rather than Conan and Iron Man. Ninjak, by Kurt Busiek, Neil Vokes, and Michael Avon Emming, mashed up two video games and ninjas, mashup video games and ninjas, rather than James Bond and ninjas. Bloodshot, by Len Kaminsky, Sal Valuto, and Jeff Albrecht, brought conspiracy theories into the story of an avenging, gun-wielding hero. Magnus, by Tom Pyre, Mike McCone, and Mike McKenna, didn't star a robot fighter in the 50th century, but a man who travels back in time to save our world. Nicieza and collaborators also produced new versions of Shadow Man, Solar Man of the Atom, Turok, and Eternal Warriors. Along with the rebooted Valiant Heroes, Nicieza and team launched three new series. Troublemakers, by him, Kenny Martinez, and Annabelle Rodriguez, sets teenagers in, the, in adventures looking to save the world. Kevin McGuire's Trinity Angels delivered his customary mix of deadpan humor and wacky charm to the story of three heroic but bickering sisters. The breakout hit of the relaunch was the madcap Quantum and Woody by Christopher Priest and Mark Bright, billed as the worst superhero team of all time. The series combined deadpan blackout humor, heartfelt friendship, and an intriguing look at race relations and a postmodern look at the hero genre. For a fleeting moment, the relaunch caught readers' attention. Most of the VH2 titles, given that nickname to differentiate them from the original Valiant Heroes or VH1 series, were successful with their first issues. Well, relatively successful, achieving sales of around 300,000 copies, or 30,000 copies per issue. 30,000. By the time 1997 ended, the reboot of Valiant Heroes at Acclaim was failing decently. 
However, by March 1998, Quantum and Woody, their most popular title, sold only 11,500 copies per issue. And four of Acclaim's 10 releases that month sold under 7,000 copies. That was an unsustainable level. And each issue incurred a loss. Even Turok, which sold millions of video games, sold only 10,000 copies after debuting at 23,000. The problem was that the new versions of the Valiant Heroes were hitting a bad chord with many consumers. For example, Kurt Busiek described the fan reaction to his Ninjak this way. Readers who liked it, liked it a lot, but old Ninjak fans hated us for not doing something like the Bondi and Ninjak Volume 1. Lots of fans ignored the line completely, and there were a hefty number of people who refused to even look at Ninjak. Though Comics Buyer's Guide listed a claim as their fifth largest American publisher in 1997, the VH2 heroes saw their final releases in October 98. Some acclaimed comics were canceled after they were solicited and had work completed and paid for. Concrete Jungle, The Legend of the Black Lion, was solicited as a six-issue miniseries by Christopher Priest and James Fry, but only the first issue of this urban noir saw a print after advanced issues of issue three dropped under 5,000 copies. A A final valiant effort was made to resurrect the acclaimed heroes in 1999. After the VH2 line flamed out in 1998, editor James Purim attempted to revive the Valiant Comics heroes the following year, delivering a trio of series with familiar titles. Perhaps the most anxiously awaited one was Quantum and Woody, still written by Christopher Priest and drawn by Mark Bright. Rather than resume the series numbering where it left off in 1998 with issue 18, the next issue of Quantum and Woody that got published was issue number 32, September 99. In other words, that series had jumped ahead 14 issues as if it had never stopped being published in the intervening months. The following month, Acclaim published Quantum and Woody, number 18. Priest's intention going forward was to fill the gap so readers could see how the series progressed to what they read in issue 32. Unfortunately, only three more issues were published before the series was canceled for good with issue number 21 in February 2000. The second Valiant series renewed was Shadow Man, now written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, with art by Matt Brood and Brian Benjamin. This dark tale of crime and vengeance was greenlighted due to Acclaim's plans for a corresponding video game. Shadow Man lasted six issues, the final one containing a December 99 cover date. The final Valiant series to get relaunched was Armorines by Omar Banmali, Mike Martz, Jim Calafiore, and Peter Palmiotti. It proved to be a massive flop. Armorines number four, the new volume's final issue, sold only 2,500 copies. All remaining hopes for acclaimed Valiant Comics Renaissance were pinned on a miniseries titled Unity 2000, a deliberate allusion to 1992's Unity, the crossover that triggered Valiant's massive popularity in the first place. Fittingly, the person tapped right Unity 2000 were former Valiant co-founder and editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. He was teamed with artists Jim Starlin and Joseph Rubenstein. As described by editor Mike Martz, the miniseries is intended to bring into conflict the characters of the more recent Acclaim universe and the original Valiant universe, while simultaneously generating new ideas and characters that will carry Acclaim comics into the future. Bringing in in themes from the very first Valiant stories, Shooter sets Dr. Solar in a vicious battle with Master Dark and Morningstar to prevent the entire multiverse from collapsing. In the end, Solar succeeds, but many alternative universes are devastated. As a result, 
All the disparate versions of the Valiant Heroes that have been introduced throughout the 90s become unified. In other words, all the variations of Solar, Extra Mana War, Ninjak, etc. get reduced to one definitive version. Does that remind you of Crisis on Infinite Earths? A new Valiant universe is established, effectively wiping out the continuity of the entire decade before. Shooter seemed to relish the opportunity to obliterate everything that was established after he left Valiant, with characters casually dismissing the changes that happened over the past several years. Not everyone shared Shooter's enjoyment. Indeed, former acclaimed editor Jeff Gomez was horrified by what Shooter was doing. He said, I read Shooter's content before it was published, and I called acclaim, and I said, Please don't do this. You're destroying your intellectual property. This is vindictiveness, and this is a person who's acting out of anger toward the past. With his treatment of VH2 Master Dark and Sandra Dark, Jim was undoing everything that Fabian and I had been trying to do to bring things back around. The universe was becoming a farce, unrecognizable. Even though all six issues of Unity 2000 were solicited in Diamond Distribution's previous catalog, Acclaim only published three of them due to extremely poor orders. Fragments of the final three issues eventually surfaced on the internet. Also solicited in 1999 and 2000, but never published, were one-shots starring Mainstays, Harbinger, Bloodshot, Magnus, and Dr. Mirage, as well as an Acclaim Comics web anthology presenting the Valiant Heroes in a web comic format. Ultimately, fan apathy doomed the revival of the Valiant Heroes, and the line went down for the third and final time. After a decade of Valiant Comics' existence, what was their legacy? Was it their brief burst of popularity? Was it their long and sad fall? To me, the best of the Valiant comics were the early Valiant comics. The uh, pre-Unity Valiant comics are some of the greatest stories of the 1990s, and the Unity crossover is really worth seeking out if you can find it in back-issue bins. It's one of those rare cross-universe crossovers that really changes the characters' lives. In the end, Valiant... If I was to be asked if Valiant was a success or failure, I would say it's a success. After all, we're about to get inundated with new Valiant movies and TV shows based in part on the properties created 30 years ago. And how many properties from the 1990s can you say that about?